0: Let's uh, have that passage in Luke chapter 19 uh, open in front of us. It would be good to have that open as we walk through it uh, just now. Let's uh, take a moment again to pray uh, and ask for God's help in understanding uh, this that we're coming to now. Our Father, we read in the book of Colossians the command of the Apostle Paul really to let the message of Christ dwell among us richly as we teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through your word, through the hymns we've been singing, songs from the Spirit, singing to you with gratitude in our hearts. We do this in the name of the Lord Jesus, asking for your spirit to be at work in us now uh, as I speak, as uh, we all hear and listen. Help us be like the Bereans to seek to find that which is true, and whatever is true to live it out, with your help, in Jesus' name. Amen. Matt is uh, all in when it comes to living out his faith. Everybody around him knows it. It's, it's like he leaves a significant impression on every single person that he meets, from his brothers and sisters in his own church family Uh, who are encouraged to follow Jesus more closely, whether that's from a simple 20-second passing conversation as you walk past him in the vestibule, or whether it's someone sitting down with him in his favorite coffee shop having a great time being discipled by him. From the brothers and sisters, of course, to the unbeliever that he befriends in many and varied places like the bus, people who are regularly and often just struck by his warmth, and also by his gospel. He's all in, you understand, because he loves Jesus Christ with his whole heart. And he's so grateful that he's saved and knows full and well that in his life, his life is a stewardship. He's been entrusted with something precious, not to keep but to pass on, and entrusted with a task to do it knowing that there's a time frame on it. And that task is to take the gospel to as many people as possible. Let's think about Adeline. Adeline, like Matt, is a church goer. She likes the sermons the minister gives. They're not all fire and brimstone, she likes that. And the topics are often really relevant, like the climate and inclusivity and immigration crisis. She doesn't really know anyone else in her church that she would actually call a friend, Uh, but she likes to volunteer, not in the church, but in different places like the homeless shelter or she's serving as a GP. She helps at the women's refuge. She doesn't really tell anyone about Jesus. She doesn't want to be seen to be shoving it down anyone's throat. And lastly, there's Tony. Tony is utterly convinced of the fact that he has made complete sense of life and needs no God. Uh, In fact, he pities those who believe. He's kind and he's polite about it, but he thinks they're weak and their need of a crutch like Christianity is, you know, fundamentally pathetic. And he lives instead according to the whatever makes you happy and harms no one else system of living. He hates religion. He hates Jesus, he says that he loves everybody around him, but other people have something to say about that. Why do I start with these three examples? But I start with them because I think it puts a little bit of contemporary flesh on the kind of people that Jesus addresses in this passage, the kind of people he mentions. In this passage, as it was read to us by Pierre Eve, I wonder if you noticed, the there were three different groups of people who were characterized, if you like. There there was the faithful. That was pretty plain. Uh, There was the false, and there were the foes. And verse 11 in this passage tells us exactly why he's written it for us, why Jesus told this uh, parable, sorry. He told this parable to help all of those around him who are getting very excited about the prospect of this kingdom coming at once. He's telling them to expect a delay before this kingdom of God comes in its fullness. But he also told this to them so that this parable to them so that they would know how to live while they wait for the coming of that kingdom. And this is why it's super relevant for us, because we are living in this middle time. We're living in this time of delay. And the question is, even at the start of this sermon, that I want each of us to be thinking about tonight is, which of the three are we? Faithful, false, or false? Let me recap just where we're at. We joined the story about eight or nine days from the cross. This full section from chapter 17, verse 20, all the way through to the end of this passage is all about the kingdom of God and who can enter it. Verse 11 tells us that in that moment, uh, the kingdom of God was coming up. They thought that the kingdom of God was coming at once. And as I said, two things really make them think that. One, what they heard Jesus say. Look with me, verse 10. He had just finished saying, "'The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost.'" And with these words ringing in their ears, the crowds around them are getting so excited. They're, They're daydreaming of the salvation that's just about to roll in around the corner. But that daydream looked like it might just be reality given the second thing is where Jesus is going. He's going up to Jerusalem, the seat of Israel's power, and he's going to do it at Passover. Surely they must have been thinking, the kingdom of God is at hand, the Messiah is here. We're going to see these Romans ousted. Now is the time. But of course, the people then were mistaken. And to correct their misunderstanding, Jesus tells them this parable that introduces these two things that they weren't expecting. One, a delay, a a, a time for serving the king, and secondly, a day, a time to give an account. And those are the two points I'm going to hang everything on tonight. Let's look at point one then, the delay, a time for serving him, verses 12 to 15. Look with me, verse 12. Jesus tells this parable really to illustrate his own itinerary. Uh, look with me. It says, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. Now, in pretty simple terms, uh, the, the man of noble birth essentially represents Jesus. In the original language, it says that we're talking about someone here who is well born. And Luke in chapter one and two has shown us that no one has a better birth story than Jesus himself. Merry Christmas. Christmas. Secondly, the journey of the nobleman in the parable, the, the, the journey that he takes represents the journey that Jesus is going to take. So he's laying out his own itinerary, mapping it out on the man in this parable. The nobleman leaves for a distant country to have himself appointed king, which sounds weird to us, right? I mean, normally the person who's appointed king is, just, is born in that country and is just appointed whenever the previous king or queen dies, like we saw with King Charles. But of course, remember, this is at the time when Israel was under Roman rule. And under the Roman Empire, it was very common across the empire for national or regional rulers in conquered countries or regions to travel to Rome to seek permission to rule from Caesar, who was the ultimate lord, the ultimate king. You can read about this if you're interested in the Jewish historian's works. Uh, Josephus, he writes about what both Herod the Great did and Archelaus did in his his, uh, historical accounts. But ultimately, Jesus is saying that's what he's going to do. When the work of saving sinners through his death and resurrection is done, he's going to ascend to heaven. You read about that in Acts chapter 1. And then he's going to be recognized and glorified on entry into heaven as the king of all kings. That's Daniel 7 and Philippians 2 for us. But Jesus will be gone for a while. That's the point. And not a short while either. Notice it's a distant journey. It's going to take some time to go there and to come back. But he is definitely coming back and that's vital information for the two groups mentioned in the parable then both servants and subjects okay servants and subjects look with me verse 13 in verse 13 jesus tells this parable to help people know what what to help us know what people will do while he's away look with me verse 13 he called 10 of his servants and gave them 10 minas put this money to work he said Until I come back. So, what do we see? Firstly, that his servants will go about the master's business until he returns. The delay is a time to do his kingdom work, to serve him. And notice, in particular, in the passage that the master has given them exactly what they need to serve him. Now, in the parable, that's Amina. I mean, it is basically the same as around three months' wages. If you take, if you want an equivalent term in in, in 21st century Edinburgh, you know, the average salary in Edinburgh is £38,000 a year. So let's say three months' salary in today's would be around about £9,000. Now, that's a lot of money to us. But actually, when you think about it in investment terms, it's not a huge amount of money. I mean, if you were the manager of a hedge fund for King Charles, whose net worth is, is currently sitting at 600 million pounds, and he gives you 9,000 pounds of it to manage, you're going to think it's a pretty small amount, aren't you? It is, compared to his overall worth. You might think, this is hardly worth investing at all, until you actually realize what the MENA represents. The mina in this passage, it seems, I believe, (laughs) represents the gospel. It's not to be confused with Matthew 25 and the parable of the talents. It's not talking about spiritual gifts. That's a different parable told on a different occasion. It's, It's just a different parable. But what's given to each of the servants is the same thing. And servants of Christ are given each given the gospel to steward. Servants of Christ are to put it to work by... Proclaiming it just as he, the master, has. And we serve the way he has served. And notice for how long they've to serve him in this way, verse 13b, until I come back. They've to put this gospel to work. And this is the time that we're living in, friends. This is what we do while we wait for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we do it knowing that we'll be held accountable by God the one who will return to reign. Well, that's the servants in the parable, but what about the subjects? Now, his subjects will object to his rule and seek to disrupt it while he's away. Uh, verse 14 tells us why. They hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. That actually happened in, when Archelaus, the son of Herod the Great, went to Rome to be made king. Our Jewish delegation went after him to complain and to protest, saying, we don't want this man to be king over us. And the reason was, he wasn't even a true Jew, and to impose his reign, he had 3,000 Jews slaughtered at Passover. So they did not want him to be king. And it seems like the subject, if you like, the citizens of this kingdom didn't want this man to be king. They rejected him as king when he was here on earth, and they reject him when he's gone. Now, people do that nowadays, of course, but not by going to God and saying, excuse me, we don't want this man to be king. No one would, who, who's an atheist would actually do that, for example. But by every unbeliever's suppression of the truth, by the rejection of his rule, and by living according to their own ways, they're ultimately demonstrating not love for gods, but hatred of gods. To spurn his love is the equivalent of hatred. But we mustn't miss the reason why. You know, servants of the master can find themselves on the receiving end of that hate as well. And let me ask you, who then in the parable do you identify with most? The servants or the subjects? The servants or the citizens? We are either one or the other. Either serving Jesus or rejecting Jesus. Loving Jesus or hating Jesus? Keep that answer of yours in mind because the end of this parable explains why we don't want to be in the I reject Jesus camp when he returns. Because return he will. The parable says so twice. The nobleman who says in verse 12 that he will certainly return does in verse 15 return and return as king. And when he does, what happens? Well, the delay is finally over, and the day to account has finally arrived. And this is point two, the day, a time to give account. Now, this day of accounting, uh, when you read through the parable very clearly, just splits in two. When he returns, the first thing he does is he rewards his faithful servants. This is what you see in verse 15 to 19. He sent for the servants to whom he had given the money, in order to find out what they had gained from it. There's the expectation, gain. Now in verses 16 and 17, the first servant comes forward and gives an account to the master and the master rewards him for his faithfulness. Look with me. The first one came and said, Sir, your mina has earned 10 more. Now notice the humility there. He doesn't say boastfully, Look at what I did. Am I a good servant or what? We might expect kids to act in that way. But with maturity comes humility that says, Your minor, your minor has earned 10 more. What you have given me to invest has grown and has multiplied to your credit. It's your investment. It's your gospel that grew. I just put it to work like a sower scattering seed, but you caused it to grow. And that's how it is. And it certainly did for this man. One meaner grew to ten more. A 1,000% gain on investment. And that's incredible. And look at what it draws in the text. Verse 17. Commendation and reward. Well done my good servant. His master replied. Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter. Take charge of ten cities. Now that is incredible isn't it? Even though it's. The master's mina that's worked to gain ten more, the master loves to bless the faithfulness of his servants. And Jesus is just like that for us. In fact, blessing here even seems like too small a word to describe the reward that he gives to the faithful servants. Because when you look again at verse 17, it says, because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of... 10 cities. Now here's why I was so keen earlier to stress that this mina was such a small amount. Remember King Charles' investment fund, the equivalent of a mina is around 9,000 pounds. Well, if you grew the king's investment from 9,000 pounds to 90,000 pounds, what would you think that in response to that small gain on that small investment King Charles turned round to you and said, I was really tempted to do a voice, but I'm, I'm not going to. I am so very, I'm still tempted. I'm so very pleased with your faithful service. You are now the mayor of Edinburgh, and Dundee, and Aberdeen, and St. Andrews, and Perth, and that other place, Glasgow, in fact, why not look after whales for me? You know, it's. what would you think if he said something like that? You'd be thinking, wow, I really don't deserve all of that. You gave me such a small amount. I put it to work. But it was your investment that did the work. And actually, my gain compa- compared to your eternal net worth is absolutely nothing. You would just think, this is, this is crazy. This is more than I ever thought I would get. And you'd be absolutely right for thinking it. Because what stands out in this parable is that the reward is totally out of proportion to the service rendered. Totally. Totally out of proportion to the return one gained. But why are we so surprised at this? Why is it still to those of us who hear the gospel of grace preached again and again and again and read it in our Bibles again and again and again, be so surprised that this master of ours loves to give graciously and kindly to us in ways that are just beyond our comprehension, to bless us and to gift and to reward in ways that are so disproportionate to our service that to us it, just, it still seems bonkers. But it's not, it's not bonkers, it's who he is, our generous king, kind beyond all our imaginings. It's grace. We always want to put a cap on grace, we always want to say enough's enough, but he gives more grace. It's astonishing. And that's what we're supposed to see even in the second servant too. I think sometimes the first and the second servant are often put together and we think, oh my goodness, and this is, oh, we're going to get a kick in now from the pastor. You know, it's like, are you, are you a ten servant, mean a return, or are you a five, mean a return kind of person? You know, that's not the chat. The point is that the, the second servant is rewarded for his faithfulness too. You're not supposed to look at him and go, oh, he only got five cities to look after. He got five cities to look after. He got grace upon grace upon grace poured into his life that is entirely disproportionate to its service. He, the Master, loves to be kind to you. He loves to reward the things that fundamentally he gets the glory for. He's the one who puts the Spirit in our hearts. He's the one who opens up our mouths and gives us the words to declare. Even as we proclaim the gospel and he weaves us into his sovereign plan, the sheep are called in by his voice. He's the one who awakens dead hearts and and gives people new life. And he uses us and then rewards us. It's incredible. Please, friends, see the first two servants grouped together. They both represent faithful servants of Jesus. They both rewarded with blessings disproportionate to their service. So, friends, those of us who know and love the Lord Jesus and for whom to be saved according to this good news of Jesus Christ is just our heart's treasure, the Lord has given us something very precious in his gospel, has he not? And the Lord has promised to do something miraculous and eternal through simple, daft, sinful, faltering people like you and me. And He has promised that He's going to be at work in and through what we see as our weak service to bring about eternal salvation. And that's not bonkers. Nothing that is of the perfect mind and will of the eternal Father can be called such. He calls it wisdom, and he gets glory for it. The Lord has given us something precious in the gospel. It's not ours to keep and enjoy, it is, but it's to pass on and proclaim. And actually, no matter what else we do in life, no matter what grades any child here gets at school, or how far anyone who's working advances up any ladder, The only thing that will matter in the end and the day of accounting will be what we've done with the gospel that he's entrusted to us. We just operate in different spheres, contexts. But are we putting this gospel to work, friends? Are we proclaiming it? Do you notice that in the start of this parable, I'm going to say this, the, the Lord rewards faithfulness. That should be an incentive to us. But actually, in the parable when he gives the mina to each of his servants, he doesn't even say he's gonna reward them. Did you notice that? There's no promise of reward there. They so love their master and are so enthralled in being about his business that they just put it to work. But the Lord rewards faithfulness. He's shown us a kindness in informing us of this. He blesses faithful servants with a well done and a mind blown reward. And I cannot help but think this is what Barry Sprott walked into and entered into this past week when he was taken home to be with Jesus. On the 26th of April 1974, the Lord saved him and gave him that gospel mina. And what after 48 years of Christian living had he gained by it? Lord knows how many have come to faith through the 15 million gospel folders that Barry sent out across the world. The Lord knows how many have been evangelized by the brother who once sat week after week in Faith Mission Bookshop being discipled and encouraged by Barry. He put the gospel juice into everybody else so that everybody else went out like red-hot evangelists like he was. And if we want any direction on how to be a faithful servant, putting the Lord's mina to work, just reflect on his life and Maureen's. And look forward to having him as your mayor in the next He's Matt, in case you didn't guess. Serve the Lord with all you've got, as he did. The Lord loves to reward his servants. And take care to be found as a servant, friends. Because when Jesus comes back, he not only rewards his servants, he condemns rebellious subjects. That's what we see in verses 20 to 27. In the parable Jesus told, I hope you saw it, but let me point it out. Rebellion is, rebellion shows itself in two forms. 20 to 26, the master condemns, firstly, those who are false. So here is someone in verses 20 and 21 who says, sir, here is your mina. I've kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you're a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. Now, question. Does that sound anything like the king who's just rewarded his servants with grace upon grace? It doesn't, does it? I mean, a hard man in Scotland is a tough guy, but a, a hard man in Israel was tight Austere. And what do you call someone who takes what he didn't put in or reaps what he doesn't sow? Well, extortionist or a thief or something sinful anyway. The servant has only the kind of picture of his master that you you must conclude he doesn't know his master at all. And neither is he actually afraid of the master for even as the master points out in verses 22 to 23, that if he truly feared the master and did believe that this picture that he paints of him of being a hard man, if he believed that, then it, he would have at the very least just put this money in the bank and made some interest on it. At least have if you feared him, at least get some kind of gain. Shopped when called to account before the returning king, though he lied. He had no interest in his cause whatsoever. And when he put the mina in a hanky, he demonstrated that. And he tries to show himself in some way a servant, but the master saw right through him. That's why he branded him wicked and condemned him by his own words. That's why we're confident this guy is not a believer. I mean, Jesus would never call a child of his wicked. The man is not a believer. But the faithfulness of the first two servants was richly rewarded, but the wickedness of this man is deserving of total loss. Did you see that in verse 24? He said to those standing by, take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. Now, you know what's more surprising and more shocking in that? It's what the servants themselves drew out. Normally, you know, you might expect them to be shocked at the fact that oh, he's got total loss. He's got Nothing. He's been condemned in that way. But what do they object to? What? You're going to give it to the one who, you're going to take that one from him and give it to the one who has ten? That's not fair. He's already got ten. Why not give it at least to the guy who's got five? Top him up to six. Balances things out. And again, we see what's wrong with that kind of thinking. It shows that we still worry about having less than somebody else because in our minds, oh, it must be that more makes you happy, not Jesus less makes what we have less enjoyable. It's just not true. And God, as I said, will not put a cap on his grace. He wants it to be overtly, in your face, outrageous. As as, as verse 26 reminds us, this is the master's principle. I tell you that everyone who has, to everyone who has, more will be given. The one who's mayored over Edinburgh, Dundee, Aberdeen, Glasgow, and Wales is given Manchester as well. Just to make sure we know that those who've been faithful will be given more and more and more without limit. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. Notice that, friend. Every pretense of self-sufficiency, every... Claim to be Christian that is not backed up by deeds that prove it. Every notion of independence, every ounce of self-rule which is rebellion against the king will be expunged and the nothingness despised for all eternity in hell. In the end, Those who falsely claim to be servants of Jesus are treated the same way as his foes. And that's what we finish with in verse 27. The master condemns those who are his enemies. Those enemies of mine, verse 27, who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. Now that is pretty grisly, isn't it? It's pretty grisly. But it's meant to be. It's a parable that packs a punch, that tries to make everyone who's in that category wake up before it's too late. Because this parable teaches that those who rebel against God and reject the master, Jesus, in hatred, that they won't escape the judgment of God. Even though they rebel against him and operate by their own self-rule, fundamentally, this passage says you're still living on his soil. You're still breathing his air. He's the one who gave you life and you're going to be called to give an account for it. No one will escape the judgment of God. And if we think that this is grisly, actually, the judgment of God is grislier. I'm not talking in terms of gore. I'm talking in terms of hell and it's very, very serious. In 2 Thessalonians 1 verses 8 and 10, it's described in this way by the Apostle Paul. He will punish those who do not know God and do not not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all who have believed. So if you're here tonight and you cannot say, the forgiveness of sins that I have through Jesus Christ is the treasure of my heart, my encouragement for you is to turn from sin and rebellion believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. You might be ready to do that tonight. If so, come and chat to us at the Connect table afterwards, A Connect corner down here. We'd love to talk to you about this. We'd also love to give you a little Mark's Gospel to take away and help you know how to read it. Actually, having somebody read it with you is the best thing that you could possibly do if you are feeling so convicted by the possibility that you might not be in good standing with God. Come and chat to us about it. We've all, each of us have been in that situation and have been led to an understanding of the gospel and to faith. But as I close, let me just go back to my initial question with our three examples that we began with. Which of the three are you? A true servant of the Lord, all in like Matt. A false servant, self-deceived and badly mistaken like Adeline. Or an enemy of the Lord's. A foe who hates and rejects his rule like Tony. Listen, let this parable be a wake-up call. Nearly 2,000 years ago, Jesus ascended to the Father's side and sovereign power and majesty were bestowed upon him by a rapturous heaven one day he'll return and his rule will be as plain to see as the embroidery on the back of his royal regal robe. King of kings. Lord of lords. And you should know that he is delaying his return for good reason. It's out of patience actually as 2 Peter 3 tells us. He's given people in our city nation and world, time to repent, which means that he's given servants of Christ like us here in Charlotte Chapel time to do something about that. So let's do that. Are we ready for his return? Are we ready to take this gospel out? How will we spend this week If the Lord delays his return for it, will we spend ourselves serving self like we so often do? Or spend ourselves serving Jesus? The kingdom of God is at hand, friends. Let's put his gospel to work. Let's bow our heads and let's take a moment just in the quietness to be praying our own prayers of response If you're not a believer, maybe this is a time to say sorry for sin and thank you for Jesus dying on the cross. If you are a believer, ask God to help you put this gospel to work. And for us, not just individually, but collectively too. Our Father, we pray you'd help us to live in the light of the return of Jesus Christ. And that we would put what you have entrusted to us to work. Knowing that we are your servants. Your blood-bought people. And you're our master. We are not our own. Uh, We have been bought at a price. So help us to serve you with all we've got. Telling as many people as we can. Out of love and praise for you. In anticipation of your kindness. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's stand and sing a closing song that helps us reflect on the what life is like to be what life to be lived is like now and what it's going to be like when Jesus Himself returns. Let's stand together and sing.